This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices sharing their thoughts and perspectives. October is Farm to School Month, and today you'll hear from three groups involved in getting local food to local schools. It's a great way to to get kids excited about local food and meeting their farmers. Also, Woods Humane Society has a new CEO. If we could leave you with anything, we want to say just a friendly and gentle reminder, spaying and neutering your pets is so very important. These stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Monday, October 23rd, 2023. I'm Carol Tangeman. It's Media Literacy Week, and since Governor Gavin Newsom just signed a bill that will bring media literacy education to California's K-12 schools, we thought it was good timing for a conversation. Contributor Beth Thornton talked with the author of the legislation, Assemblymember Mark Berman from the Bay Area. For Media Literacy Week, uh, I wanted to talk to you about your bill 873 that was just signed by Governor Newsom kind of in the last hour. (laughs) And the bill brings media literacy education into California's public schools. So first, um, maybe you can define media literacy so everyone is clear what we're talking about and then describe the legislation. Yeah, absolutely. And and thanks, you know, thanks for, for covering this really important topic. Media literacy is the ability for people to think critically and, and determine whether or not something is credible and, and also try to understand the author's goal for why the author is creating that content. And so it teaches students to evaluate the credibility and the motivations of, of various sources uh, and really helps students be more critical consumers of online content. It also uh, includes digital citizenship, which is also very important. And that helps students be more intentional about what they put online um, and and better understand online safety, online privacy. And what the bill does uh, is the bill will uh, integrate media literacy concepts into K through 12 education in California and and into the four core subject areas. So that's uh, English, math, science, and history. So we wanna integrate media literacy curriculum as early as possible so that the youth have the skills that they need to be to be better consumers of the content and also better digital citizens. And it's pretty well understood that the majority of young people are online and using social media. So it's kind of bringing the classroom um, into the 21st century, right? When, when I was growing up, I got, I'd, I'd read the newspaper every morning before I went to school. And by that, I meant I mean, I read the sports section uh, and we'd, we'd have the, you know, the 10 o'clock nightly news or, or we listen to the news and the radio when we were in the car driving places. Um, and so that, you know, there, there were checks and balances on the news that was being disseminated out into the world. Today's world is dramatically different. Uh, to, and in some ways it's better and in some ways it's it's worse. And, and you know, in today's world, anybody anywhere can push out content. Um, they can do it through anonymous 
uh, profiles. And, and frankly, unfortunately, we see certain social media platforms incentivizing the distribution of the most kind of outrageous content out there. And then in addition, the algorithms for a lot of these social media platforms create bubbles, create silos, uh, where all you're hearing are things that reinforce stereotypes that you might already have or, or, or kind of views that you might already have. And, and so we need to break out of that. And we need young people, and frankly, we need everybody to, to be savvier uh, kind of consumers online and to better understand, because we see it impact everyday events. And the, the online environment kind of blurs what's news and what's an advertisement or a paid posting. And so um, that actually takes instruction, I think, to understand how it all works. Yeah, I, I totally agree. There, a study was done that showed that 82% of middle, middle school students struggle to distinguish between advertisements and news stories. Um, and, and another study, a 2019 Stanford University study, uh, found that 96% of high school students failed to consider that ties to the fossil fuel industry might affect the credibility of a website about climate change. Uh, and, and so we know that there's so much out there that is intentionally designed to look, you know, objective and intentionally designed to look um, like it's above reproach, when in reality, it's being funded and influenced by people that have agendas. Uh, and we can't do anything about that. You know, that's that's free speech. But we can do something about training our youth to be more skeptical when they see things and to know how to do their own research. It sounds like uh, it's going to be phased in over time as um, curriculum is updated in the next few years. Media literacy will be written into that. Given given that we're in a tough uh, kind of budgetary climate, we wanted to identify ways that we could we could save costs and still be successful in this effort. And so one way to do that is that every eight years in California, these core curriculum frameworks for those four core subject areas are revised. Um, and so what, what this bill does is it says that in the normal kind of course of the, the revisions of those course curriculum frameworks, that we also integrate media literacy into those core curriculums. This is Beth Thornton. I'm talking with Assemblymember Mark Berman from the Bay Area. He authored a media literacy education bill that was just signed by the governor. There's been a conversation around media literacy for several years now, and I'm wondering if you can just kind of speak to why you felt that the time was right for you to introduce this bill. It, it's really a function of seeing how uh, conspiracies and misinformation online are impacting real life uh, in, in very damaging, very dangerous ways that that actually led to the biggest attack on America's democracy in, in centuries. And then that was uh, obviously the attack on our Capitol on January 6th, uh, where thousands, hundreds of thousands, or maybe even millions of Americans think that the election was stolen. Uh, and that's because they're on, everyone's just online too much and they're being fed these conspiracies, they're being fed these lies uh, that are really spreading like wildfire on the internet and causing and, and led to people attacking our capital, led to people dying, which is just an absolute tragedy because of lies, because of misinformation. And so um, that plus COVID and, and the spread of COVID misinformation that we saw 
really caused me to realize that we have to do more and the best place to do it is with our young people, with our youth in school to make sure that they have skills so that at least the future uh, will hopefully have much less of this misinformation, much less of this propaganda being believed. It's also important to note that this passed with bipartisan support. It, it did. And that's something I'm, I, I am proud that the bill passed with bipartisan support. Um, this isn't a partisan issue. In fact, part of the inspiration for the bill uh, was, was a similar effort in New Jersey last year that was authored by a Republican. Uh, and, and so, you know, media literacy is not partisan. It's something that, you know, there's misinformation that comes from the right and there's misinformation that comes from the left. Uh, but what we should be doing is is providing our youth with the skills that they need to identify all of the misinformation, no matter, no matter you know, the political ideology of where it's coming from. Is, is there anything else you'd like to add? My hope is that young people will come home and will tell their parents about what they're learning and what they're doing. And, and some of that will rub off on older people also, because we all could use, you know, better, better training around media literacy. Well, Assemblymember Mark Berman, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks so much for having me. For Issues and Ideas, I'm Beth Thornton. This is Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Carol Tangeman. Up next, The Nonprofit Story. Welcome to The Nonprofit Story. This is Dr. Consuelo Mukes, and I'm so excited today to have some exciting guests here to talk about a wonderful program happening from the farm to schools. Three people, Kayla Rutland, she is the Executive Director of City Farm Slow, Claire Tuimote, the Communications Director of Farm to School Program, and Taryn Moeller, the Marketing Manager of Harvestly. So welcome to The Nonprofit Story. Thank, Thank you. you. This month is Farm to School Month, and we'll talk about how the three of you are working together, but tell us a little bit about what this month is about and why it's important. Yeah, Farm to School is actually a national movement, and it, it started about 20 years ago, but our, our little independent chapter here started in 2020. I've been working on building the program since then, and it's really just connecting our local farmers to the school districts so that they can sell their produce to the schools. And then we also do activities with farmers at school districts to let kids meet who's growing their food and try new foods. So we're very excited to celebrate this month. We're doing a lot of activities and um, I'm glad to be here to talk about how we're working with Harvestly and City Farm Slow. And that's Claire Toey Motes. She's the Communications Director and Farm to School Coordinator. So how long has the program been going on? So unofficially, it started in 2016 when San Luis Coastal started buying uh, produce from local farmers on their own. And then in 2020, we sort of officially started our farm to school program. And I've been uh, working with that district as well as 10 others in our region. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, about three and a half years ish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you work with the local farmers to get their produce to the schools. And is that what you do? Or is that how we bring in here City Farm Slow? Yeah. So City Farm is one of our farm to school farmers. So they're, they're connected to San Luis Coastal District. They're selling their produce there. I work with about 20 to 25 other farmers throughout the county that are selling their produce either to multiple districts or just to to one that's, you know, geographically close to them. Uh So are these farmers, they're uh, independent farmers, small farmers? Yes, exactly. They're small to medium sized and they're all family owned. 
we try to serve these farmers because they usually have the biggest challenge connecting to more sales outlets. Mm-hmm. So uh, schools buy a lot of food and they buy it in bulk. So it's a it's can be a very large help to these farmers who they're not in farmers markets for whatever reason or and or they can't produce enough product for large distributors. So mm-hmm. schools can be a good fit for them. We have farmers in from Santa Maria all the way up to Paso. Mm-hmm. And City Farm Slow. So um, Kayla, how does that fit into this program? So City Farm is a nonprofit farm on 19 acres of land that we lease from the city of San Luis Obispo. And we as a nonprofit are farming about four of those acres. And we Primarily, as an organization, we're doing youth education programs. So we have students from preschool age all the way through young adults who are coming out to the farm and participating in growing fruits and vegetables, and we use regenerative practices. And the really cool thing about participating in the farm to school program is that those students who are coming out to the farm and growing produce are then seeing those foods in their school lunches. The remaining acreage, so about 13 of our acres, we lease out to independent farmers and our farmers also participate in the Farm to School program. And I've seen over the years how the impacts of this program, the Farm to School program, both for the students who are getting to enjoy these incredible foods, seeing them grown and then seeing them in their school uh, lunches, but then also how it affects our farmers' bottom line and can really um, make their farming business a lot more sustainable by having this sales outlet. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, what does Harvestly have to do with that? We have Tara Moeller here, who is the marketing manager of Harvestly. Tara, how does that work with you? We also add another sales outlet for these farmers. So Harvestly is a local farmer's market delivery service. Mm-hmm. We're also recently a nonprofit as well, and we deliver on Friday afternoons all over the county. So for the farmers, like Claire had mentioned, that might not be able to have the time or the finances to have a farmer's market booth, or maybe they have a smaller amount of produce to sell, they're able to put that on Harvestly and then sell that to their local community. For people that want either home delivery or can't make it to the farmer's markets, um, we add another outlet for them to sell their products as well. So there's ways to help these farmers in three different organizations here. So what has been some of the effects of this program? Well, we've seen incredible growth in Farm to School uh, over the past three and a half years. You know, we started with one district and now we're working with 11 Mm. from Orchid all the way up to San Miguel. And so that's reaching a lot of students. I, I believe it's over 56,000 students. That's amazing. Yeah, and you know, we, we grew our farmer base from about six farmers although, you know, to 25 now, and we're, we're continuing to add more farmers to mm-hmm. that, actually working with City Farm on a grant to specifically to reach more farmers. We've been um, testing out using Harvestly, actually, the software to help with the commerce of farm to school. So right now, the farmers, uh, are getting orders directly from school districts, and we're trying to digitize that so that it's a little bit more streamlined for both the farmers and the schools. The farmers can reach more districts at once, and the schools can see all of their produce, all of the produce options um, mm-hmm. in one place. So we're partnering with Harvestly to test that out, and um, we're hoping that that will streamline things and make the program more sustainable. 
because as we add more farmers, it, it becomes increasingly difficult for me to collect their their <laughs> produce availability. So if they're able to do that themselves, um, that's great. And then schools want a diversity of, of different products, um, but it's difficult for them to reach out to, say, six different farmers or 10 different farmers to give individual orders. So this is potentially a way to minimize the extra time that it takes to do that. Well, when you're working with these farmers, are we talking about farmers that have a large variety of produce? Are we talking about people with specialty areas? Yeah, we work with farmers, you know, in both categories. So um, some of them are, like City Farm has a year-round vegetable production and some fruit as well. Uh, and then, you know, but we have farms that are more mostly orchards, so they might grow, you know, avocados and uh, citrus or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's a variety of different farms uh, growing lots of different things. The schools want to keep exposing kids to more different, you know, variety of foods. So I get specific uh, requests this morning I got a request for persimmons, so I'm mm-hmm. looking for farmers <laughs> growing persimmons. That so, good. you know, things like yeah. that. So since you've been doing this with the local farmers, have you seen an impact on the farmers as far as helping them to build financially? Yeah. Kayla, have you seen that with your farmers, your tenants? Definitely. And that's actually the whole intent behind the grant that we're all working on together mm-hmm. is for a small scale farmer, there's so many barriers to being successful in this area. It's There's really high costs, um, there's labor shortages, there's transportation um, barriers. So a lot of things that small farmers are up against, small scale farmers. And so the intent of the project that we're all working on is to reduce some of these barriers by opening up additional market opportunities. So one, huge opportunity, obviously, is the Farm to School program. And then another is the Harvestly's direct-to-consumer model. And I think a huge benefit to this platform, the Harvestly platform, is that many of our regional farmers are already onboarded to it or planning to onboard onto it. And so now with this test, they could potentially access the school food markets through Harvestly and also direct to consumer. So it's one less thing for a small scale farmer to do when their hands are so full um, is to have this streamlined system to pool all of their inventory and to do all of their ordering. So, so far we've seen that it's working really well. Um, It's easy to use and our farmers are doing really well with it. If you're just joining us, this is The Nonprofit Story. I'm your host, Dr. Consuelo Mukes, and I'm speaking with Kayla Rutland. She is the Executive Director of City Farm Slow. Claire Tuimote, she is the Communications Director and Farm to School Coordinator for Slow Money. And Taryn Moeller, the Marketing Manager for Harvestly. So Taryn, seems like you're kind of a central point here for the food that's going out. Tell us how you came to be and what your role is. Claire and Kayla have been doing this a little bit longer than I have. A huge part of my job is just fostering those relationships between the farmers and helping support them. Like Kayla was talking about, breaking down barriers and helping them have more 
ways to sell their products and in turn educating our local community about what we have locally. I know when we did a poll, Harvestly had done a poll a while back asking our customers what they wanted to see more of on our platform. One of their biggest desires was fruit and vegetables. Well, this was in the middle of the horrible winter that we had, and that was really hard for all of us, especially the farmers and ranchers. So it was a really neat opportunity to educate our customers about what is grown locally and what is available, and then also them having empathy or sympathy for the farmers that, you know, maybe someone ordered radishes, but then the radish crop was flooded and they had to understand, you know, I'm really sorry, we have to give you a refund for that this week. And they were great. Mm-hmm. You know, they were totally understanding. So just building and fostering that sense of community amongst these organizations to support not only our farmers and local food producers, but also our community and mm-hmm. just working together and kind of unifying everyone. So now you're actually delivering food or do people come to you? How does Harvestly actually work? We are delivering food. So we're a doorstep delivery. So if you place an order on harvestly.org up until Wednesday at midnight, then you'll receive a doorstep delivery on Friday afternoon. Mm -hmm. And so all of everything you deliver are from the local farmers. Is that correct? Correct. Yes, local farmers and food producers. Then let's talk a little bit more then about what's going on in the schools, because it sounds like they're learning a lot about produce and eating well, I hope. Yeah, so I'm very fortunate to work with uh, food service directors at our school districts that are really, really focused on getting the freshest, most nutritious food for their students. So they're really dedicated to working with local farmers. Uh, So that decreases the barrier to my job so much. Schools now are serving universal free meals in California. So any student is able to get two free meals per day. You know, the schools have pretty high nutrition requirements that they have to meet in their in their meals. And then additionally, they're, you know, working with local farmers to get really fresh fruits, vegetables, but they're also buying local meat, honey, olive oil, spices, you know, a, a lot of things that they can find locally. And then as part of our program, we try to not only promote our farmers to the students, but also educate them about seasonal produce. We have banners and stickers and posters and everything that we that we provide to the schools so that the kids are learning a little bit more about where their food comes from. And then the schools are also um, partnering with us to do Meet the Farmer events. So we invite farmers to come to school districts to meet the kids, uh, let them try their produce and get feedback, and the kids get to ask questions and uh, it's really fun. We, we're doing a lot of those this month for that Farm to School great. Month. Let's talk about that Farm to School Month. What makes that different? Yeah, it's just a national celebration of Farm to School. There's a lot of national days, you know, National Farmers Days this month in October. So I think it's, you know, that harvest season, traditional harvest season. It's a great way to, to get kids excited about food and local food and meeting their farmers and we definitely use it as a as a way to to reach more districts that maybe aren't participating as much and and say hey do you want to do this fun activity for your kids and um, you know and they get really good feedback from the kids too so when we've done it as districts who've never tried it before and then their kids really love it they come to me and say can we do more of those so um, so it's a great way to yeah just to reach the students that way good and city farm slow you do a lot of educational things too don't you we do yeah and I just want to underscore that the importance of the food literacy component that Claire was mentioning with the Meet the Farmer events. 
We do a variety of education programs on the farm, and one of them is a field trip program focused on kinder through fifth grade students. So they come out to the farm for a two-hour field trip with their classroom, and it is amazing to see kids on the farm all raise their hands to try raw kale. And the chaperones who are on the trip are like, what is happening with my kid? That's great. They want to eat raw kale right now? This never happens at home. But when kids are understanding where their food comes from or meeting the farmer who grew it or participating Mm -hmm. in growing it somehow, they're way more interested in that food. They're inspired to try new things. Um, They get really jazzed about fruits and vegetables. So even just a tasting event at the school can have a really big impact on a kid's food choices down the road. And that in turn also supports our local farmers because we're selling more local fruits and veggies. Then Harvestly, you come in and help to get some of those things all bundled up and get it to people personally, right? Correct. Mm -hmm. Yes. How does your program work all together? It's mainly an online platform, but we really stress meeting people. Like, I love the idea of the farm to school, the meeting the farmers. We do, on our social media page, we do a Meet the Maker Monday and a Feature Farmer Friday. So if you go there, you can see City Farms interview. I think it's just important that they see the faces, that we're not just another online ordering platform. You know, there's so much competition out there to order your beef box from somewhere or your vegetable box from somewhere and get it shipped in. But I think there's so much more value and nutritional value buying it locally and getting to know who's in your community. You know, your money is staying in your community. You're supporting everything here. You're supporting our educational systems and our local farmers. You can go to harvestly.org and there's a way to click on the vendors and see where they're located. And we rotate promotional products and our new vendors as they come on on there. And Kayla, how about you? How could people find out more about City Farm Slow? Yeah, you can go to our Instagram, Facebook, or website as well. So cityfarmslow.org or cityfarmslow on social media. And there's a ton of ways to get involved if you're interested in local food, in regenerative farming, in climate action, all those things you can learn more about with us. So we do volunteer events every second and fourth Saturday of the month, typically. And then we do special events as well, and we post about those on our social media. Claire, I'm going to ask you also, how can people get involved with you with the Farm to School program? On our website, which is slowmoneyslow.org, there's a page for Farm to School Central Coast. And then we also have social media on Facebook and Instagram, Farm to School CC, so for Central Coast. We host our own events, but we also partner with City Farm and Harvestly to have events. Um, So we uh, keep people posted on that on our social media and then on our newsletter send outs Mm -hmm. as well. Any last words you'd like to share about this Farm to School month or anything else? I, well, we're just excited to to share what we're doing with the community and, and to, you know, shout out our farmers and everything that they do in our schools. I mean, they're all working really, really hard to feed their communities. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we're just really, really honored to be a part of the program and to, to be helping people in this way. And we're honored to have you here on the Nonprofit Story. I've been speaking with Kayla Rutland. She's the Executive Director of City Farm Slow. Claire Tuimote, the Communications Director and Farm to School Coordinator for Slow Money. And Taryn Moeller, the Market Manager for Harvestly. And this is Dr. Consuelo Mukes with the Nonprofit Story. This is KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. And you're listening to Issues and Ideas. I'm Carol Tangeman. Up next playing with food. Hi, my name's Sean Calloway. I am part owner of the Brookshire Farms Agri-Entertainment Pumpkin Adventure Farm out here. What? 
Agar Entertainment. This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. I'm Father Ian Dellinger, and I'm playing with food. Raise your hand if you've heard of Agra Entertainment. Higher, higher, I can't see any hands. My hand isn't raised either. Just when I thought playing with food had covered just about every aspect of food on the Central Coast, I'm presented with Agra Entertainment. I know nothing about it, so I'm going to skip my usual introduction and let Sean Calloway, an Agra Entertainment business owner, do that for me. So Agra Entertainment is where farmers have put together entertainment items and adventures that relate to agriculture, have some type of tie into agriculture, but helps keep the farm alive by bringing in income so that they can charge and, and actually have a revenue coming off of entertainment from the farm. Does it have an educational aspect? It does. Everything that we do has some sort of education. You can learn about how food's processed and grown, what it's grown for. We have an item that's called duck races. It's an old-fashioned water pump. It's how we used to get our water back in the early 1900s. You would have to pump your water out of the ground with these things. Well, now we race little duckies with it, rubber ducks. We have a corn box. It's full of two and a half tons of corn, which is almost 5,000 pounds. It's corn kernels, but you can play in it. And it's really a cool sensory thing. Checkers with pumpkins. We do other roping and old-fashioned teeter-totter made out of tractor parts. So it's stuff like that that what we do and build out here. We have educational signs that tell little stories about corn, pumpkins, bees, flowering, gardening, things that people don't realize, chickens, rabbits. We have education signs at our animal area where they can educate themselves on like a lot of people think that a chicken will lay an egg every single day, sometimes two or three. I've had people tell me 10. A chicken will only lay an egg every 25 hours, only about four to five days a week. The corn maize is grown for silage corn. It's not sweet corn, but there's many uses to that. A lot of them use it for alcohol, gasoline now, ethanol, for corn syrups. But what it's mainly used for is dairy feed, which feeds the cows, which produces milk. The area we're looking at is our pumpkin patch. And this is the introduction into the farm. I would say that there's probably 85% of these pumpkins are edible. There are certain pumpkins, the warty ones and stuff, that are not as edible. Uh, they're pretty tough. And not all orange pumpkins make the best pumpkin pie. A lot of people think so, but there's hybrids. Um, we have these red ones that are called Cinderella's. They are one of the better pie pumpkins. This one we just picked this morning right here called the Fairy Tale. They will turn a tan color. They're a dark green right now when they're ripe. Very creamy, very, very yummy type of pumpkin. Cooked down, uh, you can make a good puree with it and make it for your breads and your cookies and stuff. The pinks, porcelain dolls, white aluminas, then there's the reds, which are the Cinderella's, and then we have the blues, which are baby dolls. Uh, we have Jardales. Those are all very edible squash pumpkins. Now, the bigger pumpkins out there, the orange ones with big stems and stuff, they're very stringy. So they're really not a good eating pumpkin. They could be used for that, but they're not really that good. The little stuff over there in the far end of the farm there where the bed is, those are different little ones. They're called cannonballs, pranksters, ironsides, field trips. These are all different sizes. And a lot of those are really good for pie pumpkins. But we do actually carry a cinnamon girl, a New England pie pumpkin, and those are actually designed and grown texture and the skin inside the flesh is all designed for pumpkin pies. I had no idea there were so many different types of pumpkins. <laughs> I think there's, last time I checked, about 250 varieties of pumpkins. We carry about 75. 
We grow about 10 to 15% of our specialty stuff here. We grow 95% of our produce here. And then we grow in three other spots. We're growing in San Miguel. We're growing out on Highway 1 towards the men's colony. It's a way different climate out there. We grow in Tascadero at our house there. And now we're growing in Creston. And then we actually purchase product because we can't grow enough. So my little pumpkin story is I used to live in Britain. I lived there so long ago that you could not get a can of pumpkin pie filling unless you went to a specialty store where it costs, you know, we're talking 20 years ago, it would cost the equivalent of $7. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. So what I would have to do is all through October, they would have pumpkins in the grocery store. I would buy a pumpkin in the grocery store and I would roast it, puree it, then freeze it, thaw it and strain it, and then freeze it again, thaw and strain it because it's right, wet right. and then by thanksgiving <laughs> i would have something that was vaguely the consistency of a canned pumpkin pie filling so i have made pumpkin pie out of jack-o'-lantern pumpkins and it was fine yeah it can be done but you've got so much water these other varieties i'm telling you about have the color they have the texture and they're about an eighth of the amount of water it's in them that is going to condense down and create that problem that you were having can you show me how the agri-entertainment works? Yep, let's go. Yeah, everything um, that we try and experience out here is to educate people what agriculture is about. We have over here the roping, you can see the steer heads. You get to actually sit on a saddle. It's no food related, but it's agriculture related. Mm -hmm. What we're heading towards is our hay maze. We have almost 600 bales of straw. It is a grain crop. It is baled up and then we turn it into a maze for the kids. The straw, all of it goes to erosion control, to enhancing gardens and ground conditions. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Father Ian, exploring the world of agri-entertainment. I'm learning a lot, too, and I'm about to be schooled on straw. What is straw? What's the difference between straw and hay? Hay is grown for a flavor and a nutrition value. Straw is grown for the top grain part of that value. Your oats, barley, your wheat, that is what straw is. Pod grows up on top where the seed is. It is dried to a certain level and then they cut it, it's separated, and the byproduct, which is the straw, gets kicked out. Straw has a nutritional value for animal feed, but not much but it's really a solid matter that will help keep erosion down and helps break these heavy adobes apart. It also adds organic matter into your ground, which allows your vegetables to grow even better because it provides the nitrogen and, and organic matters into your uh, soil to loosen it up and your product will grow a lot better. I accidentally grew wheat in my backyard, long story. So I can see actually what you're talking about in terms of it being the stem of the wheat because right. I went out and I cut off the tops of it, but I have these sticks still in my backyard right. that you say is straw. Product. Hay has the value, it has the seed in it, and then the cows and or animals will eat both the straw stick or the hay stick and the seed pod, and they will get value out of all that. So this is a garden that we grow here. This is all summer long. What you're looking at or what we're standing at is the very first section we grew. You can see how things are kind of died back. Cherry tomatoes up there, there's still a lot on the vine, but we moved on to the next group. And I plant in layers. So I started with my cucumbers because they take the longest. And then we put in tomatoes, then green beans, then we went with squash, and then we started with cucumbers again, then green beans. The green beans are missing, that's why you don't see them. And that's because I pull them, like these plants over here, and then I feed them to our goats at home. So this garden is not very big. As a farmer, how do you make any money out of a garden this small? 
So this isn't really a small garden. This is actually producing enough to probably feed 80 to 100 families every week. It doesn't look that big, but it's amazing what you can produce with a good crop. You know, when we first open up our farm stand, we are selling product and it's very light. So I don't want to overproduce. We do give some to some of the charities around here that look for food donations and stuff. But usually we are planting just about enough of what we can maintain and sell. We have a farm stand here on our farm that we open up. It is not a moneymaker. Okay, this is the love of the community. This is the love of Gretchen and myself, my wife and I that do this. We make enough money to maintain it, but we don't make a profit or a living on this. If this was a profit or living, it would be six times as bigger and we'd be outreaching to different areas. So another bunch of leaves down here and you can see the white tinge to it. Guess what that is? That's powdery mildew. And that has been just inundating my stuff left and right. Remember we had that little tropical storm come through? That's what created a lot of it instantly see and we don't spray for it so it polluted everything and it's carrying through you can see how these green beans we picked yesterday he's going to try one here okay. one day of watering they swell up and they're really good so that is fresh off the plant you can't get a better flavor fresher green bean now what's interesting here is this row of tomatoes that you're seeing, that's all volunteers from last year that came up somewhere in the garden. Oh wow. So we don't know what we're gonna get out of there. We could get heirlooms, cherries, slicers, we don't know. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Father Ian with the Playing with Food team with Sean Calloway on a farm between Los Osos and San Luis Obispo that's all about agri-entertainment, a way for those city kids to learn that food doesn't just come from the grocery store. Do the people who come here, do they do anything with this garden? We do field trips here, and the field trips, we educate them with this garden. We don't let a lot of U-Pick go on because what happens with U-Picks, they destroy our plants. Mm -hmm. You have about a 30% waste in U-Pick type operations. People come in and think they can just eat everything they want and then go home and buy a little basket. Well, that's product that's costing money, and so that's why U-Picks are kind of falling back a little bit because there's so many people that take advantage of it, and they don't realize how much money and effort and work goes involved into all this. The field trips are a really big thing. This is one of our rotational areas. We do a hayride that talks about corn and how corn's grown and how it pollinates versus how a honeybee pollinates our pumpkins. And then we give them a honey stick and show them how the bees operate. We ask questions and educate them that. The second rotation is basically gardening and they get to pick some stream beans and they get to pick some items and, and eat them fresh off the things, which is super great because a lot of people don't know what a fresh stream bean or a fresh tomato tastes like out of the garden. If you come down here, we have a lot of these educational signs. This is a sign that says, learn about corn. Corn's a big commodity of our world. You cannot really buy a product anymore without some sort of corn syrup, corn in it, corn starch, it is tied to almost everything in our world. I, believe it or not, am somewhat allergic to it. My and brother's allergic to corn too. <laughs> it actually flares an arthritis that I'm starting to develop. So I have learned to come off of corn. Now fresh corn doesn't bother me as much as corn syrups, like in, in our sodas and other things that you eat. Some of the things that says, how does it grow? Stalks will grow typically one to two years, will develop. So. People don't know that a corn stalk only gives one dominant ear and a second ear is usually the weaker one and doesn't get picked. Now this corn maze is almost four acres and we planted about 800,000 seeds in here. And there's 600,000 ears of corn at the minimum in here. But this will get chopped and sent to Cal Poly's dairy unit and they will use it for silage. We try and educate. We have these signs all over the farm 
how pumpkins grow, how sunflowers grow. So when I do my field trip, that's usually the first things I start asking the kids is, is who likes corn and then what kind. And I have the kids try and name off corn and they don't realize that sodas is corn and alcohol for motor vehicles is corn, even alcohol for drinking is corn. So where did Sean come up with this? I'm not an agricultural graduate. This is a learn by doing. This is a family history of stuff that I used to do as a small scales. And I've only stepped it up a couple steps. I am not a big commercial farmer. This is small farming, but we are still feeding a lot of people out here. And pumpkins is really more entertainment, but there are a lot of people who come out here and we educate them on exactly what needs to be purchased for that type of product to cook your pumpkin pie with and they come back year after year because they had such success with it and what's really difficult to say is I think we're in America spoiled to a certain degree because I couldn't produce enough pumpkin sales to be able to live on this is one part of the group the food is not something I could sell enough product I guess I could if I went huge the agri entertainment is what generates the money for us to be able to keep all this alive but it's still agricultural tie in. And that's what's fun. The corn maze we just left, it's a fun maze. That's almost four acres and it's got about three miles of trail in it. It is a professionally cut done process with a game in it. So you have to go for a search and rescue to look for these signs and search and hunt and families can get together. We do it at nighttime on a few weekends and, and it's a whole different experience at night as it is in the daytime. But you're using agriculture corn as a game and fun and entertainment and a lot of people don't realize how sharp corn is when they're in there because they can get cut on it if they're not careful and then how ears develop and how it's all put together so they get to see that when they're walking through and a lot of comments are made with people walking through the corn if we didn't have the entertainment we wouldn't be able to stay here there's not enough money in it agri entertainment as a way to keep community farming alive but it's also a way to educate people about where their food comes from and where the crops go. California is the largest agricultural state in the union with 43% of our land used for agriculture. That's 43 million acres, 16 million acres for grazing and 27 million acres for crops, according to the California Department of Food and Agriculture. That's larger than the state of Washington. We're losing 40,000 acres of agricultural land each year to urban development. We feed the country. On a lighter note, I bought the pumpkin of choice for making pies and set myself the task. Roasting the pumpkin and making the puree was indeed much easier than my previous experiences with jack-o'-lantern pumpkins. There was a lot of water, but most of it seeped out during the roasting. And then I put the puree in a cotton towel in a sieve over a bowl and put it into the fridge overnight. The texture was perfect for pie making, and I had enough puree for three pies. I took my pie to L.A. to share with my sister and her family. I made this pumpkin pie from a pumpkin from a pumpkin patch. I roasted the pumpkin and then I pureed the pumpkin and I got the water off the pumpkin and I made the famous canned pumpkin pie recipe. So let me know what you think. I'm very excited about this so because I. I think that pumpkin pie from a real pumpkin is about as good as it gets. Mm. Oh my oh God, God, it's delicious. Mm. I have not had pumpkin pie like that in so long. How's the texture? Because that's the thing about this pumpkin. It's like the whole thing is about the texture. Oh, right. it's, yeah, it's oh. really nice. It's chiffonny. Chiffonny. Mm. Chiffonny. Mm. It's really nice. I feel like it's not necessarily the texture. Like, to me, that's the taste. Really? I feel like, I feel mm. like that tastes distinctly more pumpkin-y. Mm. 
But maybe that's just the effect of being told that it's made from a real pumpkin. Like, maybe I'm... Yeah, we shouldn't have told you that first. Outstanding, Father Ian. (laughs) Agra Entertainment is not only fun and educational, it's delicious. This is KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Father Ian, and I'm playing with food. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Carol Tangeman. And finally, peace, love, and pets. This is Peace, Love, and Pets. I'm Robin with Woods Humane Society, and I'm very excited to officially introduce you all to Emily LaRue, our CEO at Woods Humane Society. Emily transitioned into CEO at the beginning of 2023. She had previously been the Director of Development for the last several years. Emily just celebrated her sixth anniversary at Woods. Woods is nearing its 70th anniversary of operating in Slow County after being founded by a woman, Frances Newhall Woods. So we are proud to have another female force leading the organization into the future. We also have women in every director role at the organization currently, including our board of directors. We think this is something to celebrate. Along with being an advocate of adoption, Emily is a lifelong volunteer currently serving as vice president of the Association of Fundraising Professionals, the San Luis Obispo chapter, a founding board member of Junior League on the Central Coast, and a member of the South County YMCA Advisory Committee. Welcome. Thank you, Robin. I really wanted to bring you on today as my guest to let the listeners learn a little bit more about you as our leader at Woods, and also really wanted to share with our listeners today some of the trends that we're seeing at Woods. I am approaching 10 years at Woods, and I have to say it's definitely one of the most difficult years that I've seen in the industry from the just pure amount of animals that are in need of our assistance, the amount of puppies and kittens that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. And so we've done some research recently Mm -hmm. and we have some numbers to share. Mm -hmm. So I want to start by telling the listeners, what has 2023 looked like for us at Woods when it comes to puppies and kittens? Just in puppies alone, we've adopted out 229 puppies so far in 2023. We are on track to increase our intake of puppies by 235% by the end of 2023. You know, we think this trend is potentially due to a few things. The inaccessibility of spay-neuter programs in some communities, the rising prices, um, shortage of veterinary staff, as well as a trend that we saw towards breeding during the pandemic. Um, So if we could leave you with anything, we want to say... Just a friendly and gentle reminder, spaying and neutering your pets is so very important. We currently operate the county's only two affordable spay-neuter clinics. We have one in Atascadero and then one in San Luis Obispo. Right now, our clinics both are outpacing last year's surgery numbers. We are on track to continue to break records, and that's due to the really high demand we see. Another thing that you can do is consider to be a puppy foster just on the car right over here. Mm -hmm. We're talking about finding a foster home for a litter of four puppies. We have two litters in the shelter right now. That helps us save lives because we are able to get them into homes quicker. They stay safer and healthier. And then we can keep those kennels open for our, our older residents. And then another thing to remember is socialize and train your puppies. We cannot emphasize the importance of socializing during that puppy stage. Right now, Woods in Slow has two weekly puppy social hours that's dedicated entirely to socializing puppies so they can be successful in homes and then also out in the public and the community as well. 
We're also seeing something similar with kittens, a little bit different of a kitten season this year. So the first thing is that the kitten season just continues. It used to be just the summer months. It's getting longer and longer. In my time at Woods, I've seen it just kind of grow week by week. We still would consider ourselves in kitten season. Woods overall in September celebrated an all-time record of 122 kittens adoptions. That's close to the same number of adoptions we did during peak kitten season in July. We're thinking a few things about this. One, of course, we're having a longer kitten season, perhaps due to the same issue of fewer cats that are being spayed and neutered over the years. Um, We're also really glad to see that locals are still eager to adopt. So these kittens aren't having to grow up in the shelter, which is something that we have seen in the past as we go into the fall season. So if you're interested in adopting, know that the kittens, they're still here. They're still also coming in. And the Woods kittens are all coming to you spayed, neutered. They're vaccinated. They're microchipped. They're treated for parasites ready for adoption. They're really ready to go straight into your home. We talked a bit about puppy foster. Same thing for kittens. We need to grow our kitten foster homes. So we would encourage anyone to head to our website, woodshumanesociety.org, to sign up to foster. You can take litters, singletons, kind of you name it for as little or as long as you like. You can be like me and fall in love on day two and decide to adopt. But you can also just serve as a temporary home for so many in need. And the other thing that I do like to talk about, because I feel like not everyone knows about this program, it's our Mom Spay program, which is where Woods will take in your kittens and puppies happily into our adoption program. And we'll also spay and neuter the mom at a very low, reduced cost. So if you are found yourself in a bit of a situation, reach out to us. We'll take in those babies and we'll make sure that mama can't have any more. So just to recap, for a very small fee, Mm -hmm. we will take in the litter of kittens or puppies. We will take care of them. We will get them all altered, ready for the adoption floor, vaccinated, healthy. You do not have to do that. We will find them good forever homes, but also get your mom spayed so we don't have those accidental litters that we are seeing way too often. All these accidental litters, if they don't end up at places like Woods, they're getting passed around to friends or neighbors or people, and those are six, seven, eight more unaltered animals that are going in the community. So that one unaltered cat or dog really has a huge trickle-down effect to causing all of this Tremendous, in shelters. So. So, but you can also sign up to be a foster, and it's a wonderful experience. It's good for families. It's good for kids. It's good for learning. It's good to just get your little fur fix where mm-hmm. you're a temporary caretaker, but you're not taking on the expenses and the decision-making. We do not want those kittens or puppies to be at Woods. We're not there 24 hours a day. We want them to be of a certain age before they're in a shelter. They're the most vulnerable. Our foster program, uh, we supply everything that the animals need. All we need is a home and an open heart and an open mind. We can get you all of the supplies, all of the food. We set them up for their medical treatments. You'll do check-ins with Woods. We really try and make it as easy as possible. There's nothing cuter than kittens and puppies, but there's nothing sadder than kittens and puppies without homes. If you're just joining us. This is KCBX Public Radio. You're listening to Issues and Ideas. I'm Robin from Woods Humane Society, and my guest today is Emily LaRue, Chief Executive Officer at Woods Humane Society. And kind of along those lines, feral cats, community cats is something that we definitely assist quite a bit with in this community. And National Feral Cat Day just passed, and I know we have some programs that we're really proud of at Woods. Will you share a little bit for our listeners about our Project Meow and 
what we're doing to help with the our community cats. Slow County is home to, quite frankly, thousands probably of cats that don't have traditional owners or access to basic medical care. Woods Humane Society's Project Meow Fund enables these community cats to receive essential medical services, which really include, most importantly, that subsidized spay-neuter procedure we do vaccinations. What we are really helping the community with is taking care of these cats that don't have homes, making sure that they can't continue to reproduce. Just last month, our Tippet Tuesday TNR, TNR stands for Trap Neuter Return Clinic, altered 40 unowned felines in just one day. And we do work with a lot of other smaller organizations that are fighting that good fight on the front lines. So in total, we have spayed and neutered over a thousand community cats so far just this calendar year. This is something that we need support with, quite frankly, without donations. This program couldn't exist because these are highly subsidized services. So thank you to our supporters for keeping that going. We have a lot of information on our website at woodshumane.org backslash or forward slash meow. That can help you if you happen to notice cats in your community, if you have a problem with them in your neighborhood, or if you want to help support us in our endeavors. When I just really think about that number that you just shared, um, already over 1,000 community cats, and we know how many litters one cat can produce in a short amount of time. Could you only imagine what the kitten season would be like if it weren't for these programs to get these community cats? Because a lot of these litters of kittens that we're finding are litters that were outdoor cats. And something else I think is so important about Project Meow is this helps the community as a whole because we're talking about cats that are roaming freely in neighborhoods, um, running wild, could potentially carry disease, um, and like you say, are having litter after litter. So this is really a way to take good care of our beautiful county as a whole. Will you share a little bit of the affordable care Woods offers to support pet parents in our community? We're here to tell you that we've partnered with Petco Love. They have a fantastic initiative and vaccine grant program. Through this program, we have been able to vaccinate 1,975 owned pets in this community this year for free. So these are owned pets that are not in our shelter that have been able to receive free vaccines. Um, We continue to offer these vaccines, again, for free to all of our spay and neuter clients. And then as time uh, and staff allows, we offer periodic vaccines clinics. So keep checking the website to see when we can make that happen for you. And we would just encourage everyone to get their pet vaccinated. We've seen a huge increase in the shelter with incidents of both parvovirus and pan-luke cases in litters that we've brought in. These diseases are so highly contagious. And in a lot of cases, they could be considered deadly for young puppies and kittens. However, a lot of these diseases are entirely preventable with vaccines, and we know that even more lives could be saved if everyone vaccinated their pets. I want to share a little bit about how people can support these important programs that we've just talked about. So please share with us again some of those trends we're seeing. Not just in our industry, everywhere. Costs of everything is rising. Animal sheltering world also is dealing with the rising cost of food, supplies, equipment. It costs Woods on average an investment of $800 per animal. That is a cost per care from the time that we bring them in all the way through the adoptions because that's including the food, the sheltering supplies, the medical care, any necessary treatments. 
our adoption rates cap at $200. So we we operate at a loss in every program and service we do, and it's our pleasure to. As a nonprofit, we really rely on a generous community to help us continue to help 3,000 plus dogs and cats per year, significantly more when you factor in our spay and neuter works. So if you would like to help us continue to make ends meet for more animals in need, you can help us with a monetary donation. Woods absolutely knows how to stretch a dollar. We have a lot of excellent partnerships and really maximize the impact that a monetary gift can make. Um, One of the ways to do that is through our recurring giving program. We call it our circle of compassion. This is where you can pledge to give either monthly or quarterly, any amount that works for you, and there is no amount that's too small. It's one of the very few ways that we can accurately predict our future income um, and then plan because then we know it's going to help animals that are in urgent need without hesitation year-round. And I'm really excited to say that starting next month, starting in November, we're offering a free 2024 Pets of the Year calendar to any new members of our Circle of Compassion Pledge. Head to woodshumanesociety.org and you'll receive a beautiful, we just saw it yesterday, Mm -hmm. 2024 Pets of the Year calendar. And can I break the news? Yes, I did chat a little bit last month okay. about the calendar and that um, Dexter was in the running for the staff Ooh. month. And so let's just we have share. a winner, and it is Robin's favorite boy, Dexter, uh, Mr. We, June. And it is so fun to take a look to flip through that calendar and to see all of these beloved pets. Um, that circle of compassion, as you said, really helps us say yes to these animals, take on more, take on the difficult situations, the medical cases that other people say no to. And again, more information on our website, woodshumanesociety.org. We are going to end with our favorite event of the year. Let's talk about Wiggle Waggle. Mm -hmm. It is our big dog party at Woods coming up October 28th. It's a free community event. This is our 31st year of holding Wiggle Waggle. This is our third year doing it at Woods on our campus so we can include our neighbors, the county shelter right next door to us and bring them into the pet party. It's from 12 to 3 this coming Saturday. Hundreds of happy people, tons of happy love dogs in costumes coming together at Woods and the county shelter next door to us. We have a very popular pet costume contest that is the highlight Very, of my life, I yeah. feel like. <laughs> Stuffed animal pool, pet fair, our trainers, vendors, of course, food trucks. It wouldn't be an event without food. Right. And Santa himself comes early to get some photos with pets and people and get your holiday card ready to go. And again, it's a free community event. We like to think at Woods of this as kind of a homecoming event for our adopters, the supporters, the volunteers, the fans. Saturday from 12 to 3, out at Woods, in slow, free community event. You can come with your leashed friendly dog Mm -hmm. or without. Just come and Mm -hmm. enjoy, get to take pictures and pet other people's dogs. Mm -hmm. So as we wrap up here, I just want to thank my guests. Our fearless leader, Emily LaRue, CEO at Woods, for joining me today. Thank you for listening to Peace, Love, and Pets on KCBX. I'm Robin with Woods. And don't forget, your new best friend is waiting for you at the shelter. You've been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments, kcbx.org.